Welcome to The Conscious Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Alex Raymond. This is the only podcast that is 100% dedicated to the well-being of entrepreneurs. Now, I know that being an entrepreneur is a long journey and it can be really tough. So on this show, we won't be sharing generic hero stories or talking about mythical unicorns. Instead, we'll get straight to the heart of what matters most, giving you tools and resources to grow, thrive, and succeed as an entrepreneur. Every week, I'll be speaking with incredible founders, CEOs, coaches, and authors to help you be more resilient and inspired as you build the business of your dreams. Burnout is one of the most significant afflictions facing entrepreneurs. And on today's episode, I talk with Jim Young. Jim is the author of the book, Expansive Intimacy, and he is a men's burnout coach. And we're going to share how to think about burnout, why we have a lot of fallacies or wrong ideas about what causes burnout and how to solve it. We talk about shame being a major driver for burnout. We talk about the loneliness epidemic and how that is impacting as well. So if you are suffering from burnout or have in the past or think that you might be on that path, this is a great episode to listen to, to give you tools and resources to turn that around and move into a state of recovery. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Conscious Entrepreneur Podcast. Hey, Jim, great to see you and welcome to the Conscious Entrepreneur Podcast. Alex, thanks. Really great to see you again. Excited for the conversation. Now, you are a burnout coach, specifically a men's burnout coach. You're also the author of Expansive Intimacy, which I have right here. And this book has helped me when I go through uh, incipient burnout, meaning <laughs> it, it's happening and I can feel it. And uh, as I was just talking to someone recently, I try not to get it to the point where I am burned out. I try to feel myself burning out first and what can I do about it? And so I've really used the resources and the stories in the book. And it's been really helpful for me. So I appreciate the work that you're offering the world. And I'd like to start actually with a story from the book. And I'd like yeah. to hear about your experience. And you talk about a time, a moment in 2016, when you were at a corporate job, lots going on, and you were living according to that traditional mentality of man up, just keep working, just keep going. And uh, in in your book, you talk about a major change that happened when you found yourself face down on the carpet uh, saying, hey, things are different right now. And the quote from the book is, I lay there on the carpet, uncontrollably sobbing, shaking from waves of stress pulsing through my depleted body. And it was clear that I wasn't okay. This is a major moment in any man's life to say, yeah. I'm not okay, and mm -hmm. to recognize everything that's going on. And this is so important for entrepreneurs to understand the context and the background. And I would love to hear your story of how you got to this point and how you finally had the courage to tell yourself, I'm not okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks, Alex. I'm I'm so happy to know that the book has been a good resource for you. And I like the progression you talk about of recognizing that I'm 
I am burning out before I get to burn out. And ultimately, ideally, we get beyond even that phase and we, we can calibrate so that burnout becomes a thing of the past, which is what I've been working on. What happened before that moment where I was able to admit to myself that I wasn't okay, and that was a solitary moment that I, I told the story of, I did subsequently go on to let other people know that I wasn't okay, which might have been actually even harder than that moment. Uh, but I had, I had gone through a corporate career just understanding the grind and understanding what was expected of me culturally without really questioning it as a, a, a male, took on the provider role, didn't really question it, didn't develop a, any awareness around what was happening to me as I was just grinding through stress and missed out on some skill development, I think, at various points in my life where I didn't know how to recognize the emotions that I was having, just kind of kept them down where they belonged inside. And I hit this point just before that story where I had been running fast for a long time. I was on the executive team of a small growing organization, helping to re-architect it. I was, I think I had about 12 direct reports at that time, which is according to many people, at least five too many. I was managing about 60 accounts as a, a virtual CIO. And my grandmother was on her deathbed. And this is a grandmother who was a second mother to me, really a primary caregiver in my my upbringing. And then a client crisis happened and I was the only technical specialist in the organization who knew how to handle it. And I pulled about 40 hours of work in about two and a half days, including a couple of uh, consecutive all-nighters. And a, a few days later, I just crashed. I, I had used up all of the reserves and I realized in a shocking moment that as, as you just read, that I wasn't okay. I couldn't do that anymore. And that was a major act of courage, I think. And to be able to say that to yourself and you, and you mentioned it was even harder to then tell other people. So how did, how did you decide, okay, I'm not okay. I'm going to go start talking about this in the book. You say that the next day you walked into your boss's office and said, I'm going to be gone for a little while. I don't know how long. Uh, and so, so how did, uh, I'm curious about how you decided to to be very firm in that boundary and what was the reaction you were getting from people when you were talking about it? When I went into my in, into work that next day and I said to my boss, I I can't do this. It, it was desperation. I was really shaken by that moment because it it all came rushing in at once because I had held it back for so long and I I just broke. And he could see that in my reaction, I mean, I, I I definitely teared up. I can't remember if I cried in that meeting. I very well might have. I was so stressed. And he was really gracious. Um, he continues to be uh, a friend. I've, I've stayed in touch with him. I was just talking to him a, a couple of weeks ago. And he said, you know, what matters is that you go get okay. We'll be all right. So go ahead and take, you know, take the time that you need. And that was a huge relief to have my my boss, the CEO, say to me, I, was, I wasn't yet president of the company. I became president later on, actually, um, kind of ironically. <laughs> and um, telling my team, I think, was even harder because I was a standard bearer. 
I was the one who was, you know, always leading the charge and I wanted to be there for them and set an example. And, and I think in that moment, I had this vague awareness, which I have a much greater awareness of now in hindsight, that the example that I was setting for them might not have been very healthy. And there was this probably guilt or shame in play, letting them know like, Hey, I'm really suffering. I need to step away. Keep it going, guys. You know. Mm. And so I, I want to unpack that a little bit. When you say you may not have been leading, giving them the best example, mm -hmm. uh, there's two part. There's two things that I'm thinking of. Number one would be getting to the point of you know collapse and burnout, or what you were just saying there, which is I'm leaving, but everyone else keep doing what you're doing. Which one of those was? was worse. <laughs> That's a tough choice. <laughs> if I had to pick one, because um, really the second one of me saying to them, hey, go, good luck keeping things going, that was about me. That was mm. my own stuff. It was really the example I had been setting that I, I think was the worst part of it, that I would be responding to emails at 1030 at night. I would show up for every single, you know, every single battle and, and leave everything on the table and let them see that that's a way that a leader behaves. That example, I think is so strong. The, the modeling of leaders is what we pay attention to more, I think, than the words, because I probably said some nice things about take the time that you need and take care of yourself and all that. And then I was showing them something different. And how did you go from, uh, from this job sort of, high stress, high performance, uh, executive, uh, having burnout, leaving, coming back and, and then taking the leap into becoming a men's burnout coach. What was that part of the, of the story? There were two more legs of it. So I, I took this long leave. It wasn't even that long. It was about a month and I really kind of did nothing decompressed. I connected with some people. I did some therapy uh, really just tried to calm my nervous system down. And I actually came back for a meeting about three and a half weeks after I started the leave, about a half a week before I was supposed to come back into into work because we were doing this big reorganization meeting and we were, we were setting a new leadership team. And I came back into that meeting. So I'm like, I wanted to be president of the company and I wasn't going to miss out on that opportunity I've been angling for for years. So I showed up while still on mental health leave to get more responsibility. And I got it. I advocated for it. I somehow showed up and I faked it until I made it. And I stepped back in from this long leave in this new role with more responsibility, P&L and oversight of culture and all of this, and put on a brave face for a while, but I was not okay still. And it was less than a year before I realized I'm, I'm not okay to do this job, the constraints of this. And, and a lot of this tied back to my personal life. I'm a, a single dad of three kids. I see them half the time. I was trying to fit them around my work. It was no longer okay for me to compromise those personal values. And so I left that job and I, I took a downshift job, um, as, as I kind of think of it, thinking, okay, if I just take an easier job, I'll be all right. And it still wasn't working for me. And a lot of that was the culture of the organization that I was working for. And so it was about a year and a half after that, that I finally said, 
I need to just go. I don't know what I'm going to do next, and I'm going to figure it out on the way down. I'll, I'll build the, the parachute after I jump out of the plane. And how did you come to understand that men were the audience that needed to hear your message? kind of funny that I didn't pick up on it sooner because it was really only about two, two and a half years ago that that clicked for me. And I've been self-employed, uh, working as a coach for about five years, uh, just over five years now. And I looked up a couple of years ago and I realized that 80, 90% of my clients currently and previously had been men who were in leadership roles and who were dealing with something that they might call burnout or they might call something else, but essentially in this high stress, high responsibility life where they maybe felt successful, but didn't have any time to enjoy it. And I said, oh, this is part of a calling, I think. And I, I really spent some time on that. And that's part of where the, the book came out of was really reflecting on, you know, what is, what, what's my best use? And what's special about men, the way that men are calibrated, the messages we hold, the way we behave, the expectations of society and culture, mm -hmm. uh, what's special about men and needing to hear this message? Are we more prone to burnout? Are we more prone to just kind of this kind of concepts of man up and, uh, you know, just grin and bear it and, and, uh, and that sort of thing, or, or where, where do you find that, uh, uh, that we are living in these constraints that might be externally imposed. You've already named a few of the key elements, and, and perhaps you picked those up from the book uh, as my part, part of my guess, but probably also from experience. Um, one of the ways that I am always careful to talk about this is that this is not necessarily a, it's not, it's not easy to generalize across genders. And if you look at statistics, for example, women burn out at higher rates than men in pretty much every study that you look at. Now, I question that in terms of, are men less likely to report burnout when they're surveyed about it? And so I'd, I'd be really curious if somebody ever did a study that uncovered some of that, um, you know, kind of hiding uh, that, that men might do around around it. Maybe men are less likely to report it, or maybe men are less likely to be aware of it. Yeah, that's, that's an equally valid uh, consideration is, you know, or do we just don't even know because we're so trained to just think this is what life is like. And I think that the socialization that we get as men in Western culture has a set of rules, and they're pretty clear to any guy who's grown up in this culture. And that's we need to be strong. We need to be successful. We can't show our emotions. We can't ask for help. And when you put all that together, it's, it's kind of an impossible puzzle that it's going to lead to, well, I just got to be alone. I have to suffer in silence if anything is, is up for me because I can't share emotions. I can't ask for help. Well, that's not human. That's not a reasonable expectation. And so when I when I explored my own experience with getting burned out and talking to and interviewing dozens of men and looking at research studies, it all seemed to center in on that set of rules, unspoken rules, but really clear that we pick up starting at a pretty young age as well. And these are things that we just carry with us. They're not, we don't think about them. We don't question them. Uh, and, and therefore 
you know, for a lot for a lot of men, it's it's uh, really hard to ask for help. It may not even be something that we even consider doing. Mm-hmm. Right? I've got to be I've got to be self resourced. I've got to be independent. I've got to figure this out. Uh, in the past, all I did was work harder than everyone else, which is one of the things that you specifically reference in the book. I'm just going to keep working harder. I'm going to put my head down, and that's how I'm going to solve my problem. That's a yeah. real external orientation, right? So that's saying the problem is out there. I'm just going to, you know, put my shoulder into it and keep going, mm-hmm. as opposed man. to, yeah, as opposed to what's actually happening on mm-hmm. uh, on the inside. And and so, what do you find? When you work with uh, when you work with clients or when you when you talk to other men, like uh, are the levels of self discovery, self inquiry there? Like, how do they typically approach it? Before I get to that, I want to just put one other note on the previous question: is that we can expect this set of outcomes in patriarchal society, and it's and, and that's part of why it's not strictly a male issue. It it affects women too. These set of rules we say are are for men, but women are trying to get ahead in a culture that is going by that set of rules because, you know, and and I'm not, I'm doing far from male bashing. I'm a guy myself. The, the, The system that was built in our economy, our culture, our society was built by men who maybe didn't feel comfortable opening up to other parts of life. And so we all suffer from it. Um, so I, I just think that's an important foundational piece to be talking about because I think there's a lot of negative press about masculinity, toxic masculinity, and the patriarchy needs to be smashed and all of these things. And maybe yes. However, let's not attack people who grew up in a system that they didn't build. Let's support everyone and you know, reshaping that into something that actually works for all of us. Um, so, sorry, I wanted to make sure I, I, I got that cause I, that came up in the previous question. Um, could you just remind me again, what the, what the active question is? The active question is, uh, how do, how do men respond to burnout oh, yeah. coaching? Yeah. How do, how does a typical person, uh, you know, come to you? What are they learning? What are their limits of self-inquiry? Hmm. We'll qualify it by the fact that somebody who might come to somebody who does work like I do is probably already on some sort of path of personal development, and they've probably already faced some kind of crisis or situation that's gotten them to uh, a point where they're like, hey, I need some help. Because as we said, it seems to be hard for most men to ask for help. So I do find that the men that I work with, whether they're uh, a one-on-one relationship or in a group setting are initially, you know, they're a little cagey, their language is very couched. And once that comfort level gets going, and it's usually pretty quick, there's this huge weight that comes off. There's this relief of like, I get to talk about these things that, you know, I'm, I know I'm supposed to do this better because people tell me that I need to be more empathetic but I don't know how nobody's ever talked to me about that. It's never felt safe to inquire about that. And so when I, in my work, I invariably find that men feel this big weight come off their shoulders and start to say, Oh, okay, I can do this. And, and I don't have to give up being a guy. I can still be a man and, you know, fill out this range of, of uh, ways that I can relate to people. 
What are some of the early warning signs of burnout or what should we be paying attention to? Increasingly, I am aware of physical impact on the body. Um, so that can show up in a lot of ways. If you're starting to feel some chronic pain, you know, your back pain, you know, we can think like, oh, well, I'm just getting older. Well, that might just be accumulated stress from a lot of times that you were storing in our tissues, in our fascia, in our ligaments. Our body, as uh, Bessel van der Kolk says, our body knows the score and we store stress in our physical body if we're following those rules of swallowing everything. Um, so that that's something I wasn't as aware of until recent years. I've been doing a lot more work on that. Um, seeing your relationships struggle and fall away is the other one. You know, um, whether it's with your kids, if you're a, if you're a dad, noticing that you know things have gotten more turbulent. You don't have as much communication with them. They don't come to you. Um, you're not connecting with your spouse. There's more arguments in that that's a sign that your stress levels are, are elevated. You're not finding the ways to regulate your system and be able to show up. Um, so those are probably two of the key areas that I, I focus on the most is relationships and kind of what's going on physically within you. Because if I'm stuffing stuff down, if mm -hmm. I'm repressing these feelings or emotions, not giving them proper uh, voice, not letting them, letting them out, two things are happening. Both my body is tensing up, which then has all sorts of potential health effects, right? Let yeah. alone can I move, but also health effects. Yeah. And then secondly, people around me notice me withholding. Mm -hmm. They notice me stressed. They notice maybe changes in temperament or what have you, and therefore don't feel close to me. Is that a fair summary of what you just said? Absolutely. And, and just to add a couple of others, you know, if you're having problems sleeping, if you're having more bouts of whether you want to call it moodiness or depression, uh, if you're feeling anxious, oftentimes anxiety and lack of sleep are going going together. You're waking up at three o'clock in the morning, you can't get back to sleep because you're perseverating on trying to fix some other problem that hasn't happened yet. Um, any kind of unexplained symptoms of whether you're you know starting to lose hair or you're gaining weight and you're not sure why. There's there's panoply and and at the worst end of the spectrum are um, increased risk of cardiovascular so cardiovascular events have been linked to stress burnout is a huge stress condition i have had a couple of different men in my circle who have had stress related heart attacks and fortunately survived them um, and, and suicidal ideation at the far end of the de depression spectrum and that's not uncommon if we look at the statistics around suicide in our country they are stacked with really horrible statistics about men. It's either four or five to one, the number of male to female suicides in our country. And the rates for middle-aged men in particular are horrifying. So there's some huge risk factors out there and there's a lot of different ways that they might show up. Wow. Now the traditional uh, sort of clinical definition of burnout involves three elements. Uh, the, fir the first element is energy depletion or exhaustion, like you were, you were just talking about, things that you can notice physically. Yeah. The second is what's called depersonalization, which is I feel detached, I feel cynical, I don't have energy, I don't care, you know, I'm just not that into whatever it is. Right? It so is I, what I it feel, is, it'll never get better. 
outside of my body, I feel disassociated almost. And then the yeah. third is lack of professional e efficacy. Basically, I'm, I'm not able to, to do my job anymore. Mm -hmm. Which ones of those manifest the most? Or, and, and this could be either for you personally or for some of the guys that you work with. Those three conditions exist, or those three symptoms rather, exist along a spectrum. And burnout is a spectrum issue, uh, as, as many things are. For me, if I rewind the tapes and look, uh, the exhaustion component was definitely there. And I think of the exhaustion component as being not only physical, but especially emotional and mental. And I'll even throw spiritual in there for the folks who have a spiritual orientation. Uh, that was really present for me. I was so overloaded and I thought I had to just keep going. So I just kept getting more tired, more exhausted in all of those different ways. Um, I didn't have the cynicism until the very end of my, when I, when I reached the burnout crater, uh, but my sense of professional accomplishment or efficacy, um, I definitely felt that I was diminished in capacity. I, I was like, I'm a baseball uh, guy. I grew up as a pitcher and, you know, I'd lost a couple miles an hour off my fastball. I, I couldn't dial it up anymore. And I didn't know why. Um, so, you know, there, there's a body of research that that definition came out of by Christina Maslach and her associates who've been doing research for about 35 years on burnout. And they have an assessment that assesses burnout specifically. And what it does, it provides a burnout profile that identifies, depending on your scores in those areas, where do you live along the spectrum? If you have all three of those at a high level, then that's when you're in full burnout. There are a lot of people who are not in full burnout. But they might just be um, over overloaded, um, exhausted, cynical, and they're at higher risk of getting to that full burnout. My personal reflection is uh, in in my uh, bouts of burnout slash near burnout, the one that pokes its head out the most is the depersonalization or cynicism. Uh -huh. You know, I, I have I have memories of just sitting in meetings and being like, "Who cares." Or what happens if we just don't do this? What yeah. happens if we do nothing? You know, and, and so that that comes across and I lose my energy. I lose my spark, mm -hmm. Your if you will. And when I, and right, and when I feel that, I feel like I feel like I'm a half a person than mm -hmm. what I used to be. And, and so for me, that was a, that was one when I when I saw that definition, I thought, oh, man, that's, you know, geez, boy, I'm, I definitely feel number two popping up. Um, there's another take on on the definition of burnout that I'd like to offer, and this is uh, this is from Jim Dethmer at the Conscious Leadership Group, and they do a lot of work on, on this and, and helping individuals and teams get through uh, troublesome habits and, and and kind of redirect their energies. And one of the things that Jim Dethmer says is that he would offer that burnout is fundamental fundamentally a psychological, philosophical, and spiritual problem. Hmm. more so than an occupational one. And and I think mm -hmm. to your point, it's not yeah. that I'm working too hard in a job that I don't like. It's that the inner things inside of me are not working or are not in the right place. And therefore I'm having a, a, a crisis about it. So when I heard you say that, you know, spiritual exhaustion is a key component, then mm -hmm. that's something that really, really feels like it aligns. And, and I'm a big believer in when our spirit is alive, we have that passion. Um, as, as you were just describing with your core symptom that tends to pop up when we're spiritually alive and we're in the zone of 
zone of genius, as uh, Gay Hendricks might call it, we're not likely to burn out certainly as easily as somebody else who's in a misaligned role or organization or culture. So yeah, I, I love that, uh, that, that framing. One of the quibbles that I have with the World Health Organization's definition, which you were referencing before, is that they refer to it as a, a syndrome of a workplace syndrome of unmanaged stress. And I think it's way too narrow of a definition because you can be a single parent at home with kids or, a, a, you know, a primary caregiver and you can burn out. You're not in a classical workplace setting and you're dealing with that psychological, spiritual um, set of factors that might be causing you to burn out. Right. Burnout doesn't have boundaries. It's not limited no. to just the workplace. It'll hit you no. all anywhere. It doesn't matter what uh, shape, size, or color you are, what you do for a living or anything. It, it's, it, can, it can find you. Yeah. Equal opportunity. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of bad information on what to do if you're experiencing burnout. Things like, oh, well, hey, just go take a vacation, you know, take, take, take a, take a three day weekend, go to the beach, you know, stuff like that. What, what are some of those most common burnout recovery fallacies and and how harmful are they? I think anything that you might find under an article that talks about life or productivity hacks is not going to be an effective strategy. So whether that's time management or taking up yoga or, taking a, you know, a, a vacation where you unplug, like, there's absolutely nothing wrong with those. They're just not going to cure burnout because the other element of that definition from the World Health Organization that I very much agree with is that it's a chronic condition. It's not something that popped up yesterday. You can't mindset your way out of it. It's something that has built up over a long period of time, thousands of reactions and decisions, a lot of them subconscious, that have slowly put us into this corner. And so it really, I think, requires to Jim Detmer's definition, sort of a fundamental look. And one of the things that I really stand on and what, what the book um, references, expansive intimacy is a, for some people, a, a very odd term. How can you be intimate in an expansive way? And it's really about social support. A lot of the research, Vilmar Schaufeli is another of the, um, you know, longest tenured researchers of burnout, most prolific researchers. And he's done a lot of work on the mitigating effect effects of social support for burnout. When we have trusted colleagues, when we have a good relationship with our leaders, and we can receive the support that we need at different times in different ways, we're far less likely to burn out. And so it's one of the places that I focus on the most because I happen to be a very relational person. Um, those other, th- those life hacks or productivity hacks, yes, have those in place. I use almost all of those that we just talked about, but I couldn't get my way out of burnout from them because actually what that would do would be to ask me to take on more at a time when I'm already overloaded. Let me build new routines and new habits when I'm completely underwater. It's, it, you know, it's just not a great strategy. My body is already like totally stressed out. My yeah. mind is freaking out. The last thing I want to do is like some new routine or some new thing. Yeah. It just wants to be in rest and recovery. It wants to be in recovery mode. Yeah, recovery. Absolutely. And that's one of the big words in the burnout uh, community. uh, Folks who are working on it is that we're dealing primarily with recovery. Prevention is 
an ideal that's hard to get to because it requires awareness ahead of time. Um, and a lot of people just kind of push through the roadblocks, myself included, raising my hand. Um, another tool that I love to promote, uh, my friend Kate Donovan runs a podcast called Fried the Burnout Podcast, and it's a phenomenal resource. And one of the things that she really uh, talks a lot about is resentment. And she's got a, a resentment journal tool that is really effective when we're dealing with burnout is taking over a period of time, and it could be as little as a couple of weeks, sitting down and cataloging, what do you resent in your life today? What's going on that you want to change? You'd like to reach across that Zoom screen and punch somebody because of what they did, whatever it is. It could be a squeaky drawer in your kitchen that you resent. And starting to identify, what do I want to change in, in my life? And it's going to get down to fundamental things if you spend a little bit of time with that and start to say, oh, where am I misaligned? Somewhat, you know, back to uh, that definition you gave from Jim Tether. I'm sure you know how important it is to have coaches and mentors support you along your entrepreneurial journey. And that's why I'm really excited to share that Gay Hendricks, who has just been such an inspiration and influential person in my life, is coming to Boulder on November 8th for an in-person workshop to help you uncover your zone of genius. Check out ConsciousEntrepreneur.us for more information on this event. It's going to be incredible, and I hope to see you there. Now, cataloging my resentments, I get it, makes sense. What am I looking for there? Or once I find them, what am I doing about it? So one example might be I'm, I'm cataloging and I'm looking now for a theme. And maybe the theme that pops up for me is, um, you know, I, I got upset that my teenage son was going to do the dishes and he didn't do it, but I, I didn't remind him to do it because it was going to be uncomfortable for me. And then I got upset with somebody else and and what I notice is that it's conflict avoidance, and that's driving a ton of stress for me. Or maybe it shows up as I've got boundary issues. I'm allowing people to step into my space too often, or I'm violating my own rules, my own values. So it's it's they seem really simple, everyday little things like somebody didn't do the dishes. And if we spend enough time and connect some dots, we can start to see a pattern that says, oh, I avoid conflict. And when I do that, I end up with this resentment that's driving this huge amount of stress that I'm not expressing. So that's one example. It sounds like I am not taking responsibility and I'm not telling what Gay Hendricks would call the microscopic truth. <laughs> and so yeah. those are things that come up and those add to the chronic stress pile Yeah, that's already on my in my life yeah now i think the other thing that'll show up often in in a exercise like that is that it's largely relational there's some things that we're doing to ourselves but a lot of it is how we're interacting with the world around us which is usually the people around us and so emotional intelligence comes into play there um it could be deeper work like therapy but uh, oftentimes it's you know just taking some time to look at like what are my relationship patterns and what can I do differently? What would, what would be the, the risk that I would have to take to be uncomfortable for a little bit to not have to carry all that discomfort long-term? Now, I do want to talk about your uh, prescription or solutions to, to burnout or ways that we can, we can approach them. Before we jump into that, though, I want to talk about uh, 
burnout's sort of cousin, if you will, uh, which is shame. Mm. And you talk a lot about the the one-two punch of burnout and shame. What does that what does that actually mean, and how does that manifest? How does shame manifest? That was one of the revelations I had in writing the book, and I didn't want to be writing about shame. It wasn't. I, I didn't think I was the the male Brene Brown <laughs> by any stretch. Um, what I realized as I was researching shame is that the stigma element of saying that I can't do something is really hard for guys. Any place where I, I have to say I need help or I feel like I failed, any sign of weakness is shame-inducing for men in our culture. And that is a pathway into burnout because I feel like I just have to put my head down. I've got to work harder. I've got to show everybody that I'm up to the task. And then if we compound that over time by putting in all this effort and exhausting ourselves, becoming cynical, feeling like we're we're not as accomplished as we want to be and we get to burnout. Well, now that's double down on shame because I have to tell people like I tried really hard and then I failed in a spectacular way. And so shame is this place that gets us into burnout and keeps us into burnout because we don't want to let people in on what's actually going on. There are several uh, quotes from your book on this, right? And, and these are all reinforcing this, uh, false male paradigm, but you write things like, I felt weak, right? Which is going to be a major trigger thing for, for, for men. Uh, I wasn't man enough. Yeah. You also write, and then you write, I swallowed tons of stress. So these are all shame precursors to, to burnout brought upon by, uh, the conditioning that that yeah. you have, or I mean, not you, but like we all have, and things that are that are really getting in our way of full, happy, fulfilled, passion fueled lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's toxic, literally. So we're just we're putting poisonous levels of stress into our systems, and uh, yeah, shame is uh, it has been a huge factor in my own recognition of where I was, how it, where I got to, and and recovering was to say, okay, I've, I've got to confront that shame because I referenced Brene Brown a minute ago jokingly, but I learned through her teachings that the pathway out of shame is to talk about your shame. It's to reveal that to somebody who is safe enough to be able to hold that with you. And my experience has been when I have done so, and I've been careful to assess, like, is somebody safe to, to hear my story, that almost invariably, I get a, an empathetic response at the very least of, oh, wow, I didn't even realize that was happening for you. And just to be seen in that way is like, oh, that feels good. And oftentimes, uh, yeah, wow, that happened to me too. I've experienced that. Oh, man, I'm not alone. I'm not this defective weirdo. Okay. What did you do? <laughs> we start to get into this bonded conversation. That's actually where intimacy can, one of the ways that intimacy can start to grow is when we realize we're kind of in the trenches together. We both went through this thing and, and shame was a part of it. And, oh, you see me, I see you. Now we've got something that connects us a lot more strongly than just we drive the same kind of car, we work at the same company, we root for the same sports team, whatever. 
I, I got that, I got that very much in, uh, in, in, in the book. And it's interesting that we carry around these assumptions about what's going to happen when we open up and reveal. Mm-hmm. I won't be accepted. They won't consider me, me to be a, a man. I'll be rejected. Yeah. Uh, and then you do it. And lo and behold, the sun still comes up in the East <laughs> and people do reach out and they are warm and caring. And like you're saying, they can offer support and share their own stories. And and that's really what expansive intimacy is all about, right? Is being willing to show up and, and talk and encourage this kind of conversation and connection. Tell us more it's, about that. It's being able to be real as yourself with all the people in your world, whether that's a colleague, a friend, a child, a romantic partner, and not feel like you have to hide parts of yourself. And and I will say that, yes, the sun will come up in the east and a lot of people are going to be there for you and show up and be supportive. And not everyone. There are going to be people who aren't ready for that conversation or uncomfortable, don't like whatever. I, I had relationships change. I had relationships come to an end. I had some you know really challenging interactions as I started to get honest with myself and real with other people. And so I don't want to make it seem like, oh, you just wave a magic wand and you tell people, you know, the things that you feel bad about yourself and everybody's going to be happy with you and make it better. That's not reality. Um, the people who love you and care about you and accept you are going to be there for it. And there are going to be people who aren't ready for that and aren't able to participate in that. And we don't have to stay in every relationship that we're in forever. And it doesn't mean that if there's a break in that relationship, that it's permanent. Um, but I think for me, it came down to, I needed to take care of myself. I got to this really dangerous place where I things could have gone really badly. And so I said, okay, if I'm going to live the second half of my life in a better way than that, what do I need to do differently? I need to invest in relationships that support me and be willing to let go of relationships that don't necessarily serve me, even if I'm quote unquote supposed to be in them still. And what is the best place to start? So let's say that I'm an entrepreneur and I'm in burnout, close to burnout, feel it coming on, and I get this concept of, of expansive intimacy. What do I do? To whom do I turn? Mm-hmm. How do I take that first step? I'll quote one of my heroes here, Fred Rogers, a.k.a. Mr. Rogers, uh, in his advice for for children is to look for the helpers. You know who they are in your life, probably, and they could be in all kinds of walks of life. They could be your HR manager. They could be a cousin. They could be your best friend. Somebody who you feel comfortable with being able to be your real self. And start to share with them like, hey, I'm having a, some challenges that I don't know what to do with. And I just want to talk about them to somebody. So I'm not sitting with them alone. I think that's number one. You know, obviously, as a burnout coach, I, I believe that what I do is valuable. And I think it's really important to sometimes, if you're really at a desperate place or a, a critical place, talk to somebody who has professional training to help you. That could be a coach. It could be a therapist. It could be both. In my case, um, I've relied on both of those resources. Um, working in groups, I tell stories in the book about the time that I spent in the Al-Anon 
uh, recovery, 12-step recovery program for friends and family members of alcoholics. And that wasn't something that I sought out because of burnout. I didn't know at the time that I was dealing with burnout when I started doing that work. But I realized how much that program and that community of people who I could be real with and who I could process things with was so helpful. So there are really a lot of different resources out there. And it's where are the safe places? Where are the places where you feel like, okay, I could go there and I could share a little bit and then a little bit more and then a little bit more and start to unwind it for yourself. Now, what are the different types of intimacy that you prescribe? There are really several, and, and I probably could have included more in the book, but for for sake of um, you know keeping it to a, a reasonable model, I rolled some things up. Um, I think of intimacy as happening across a number of dimensions, and I talk about each of those in the book. Uh, there's intellectual intimacy, being on a podcast with somebody and talking about ideas and things that we connect on is a form of intellectual intimacy that we are practicing right now. We've talked about, just in that previous question, sharing big things that are going on, big feelings and emotions, emotional intimacy, where we are able to talk about our deepest feelings with somebody, honestly. Uh, there's physical intimacy that is separate from sexual intimacy. Physical intimacy can include, you know, your kid cuddling up in your lap to read a book. Uh, it include curling up with your dog on the couch. Um there's sexual intimacy, which I think is a pinnacle experience that we all strive for uh, with, with in the right circumstances. It's a, it's literally life-giving in some cases. Um, and experiential intimacy, which is I'm going to go out on an adventure. I'm going to explore a new city. I'm going to go on a hike. Um, I'm going to be in nature. Um, so there's all these different ways that we can practice intimacy. And because of that, that means we can practice intimacy with anybody. I can have intellectual intimacy with a colleague. can have an experiential intimacy with a group of friends. I have sexual intimacy with my romantic partner. I have physical intimacy with, with my kids. You know, there's all of these different ways and it starts to become this really fun Rubik's cube of ways to connect with people. Yeah. Wow. I mean, the, the number of dimensions here is, is really striking. And so you're really talking about a whole body or a whole person support system. Oh, and right? I miss so spiritual is... intimacy in there, by the way. That's some, I knew there was one I was missing. And and that shows up in a lot of places. It could be a, a, a religious or other spiritual tradition. Uh, it could be just being out in nature. There's a, uh, I do improv comedy. I do live comedy shows. And it's one of my most spiritual places of being able to show up in this, this uh, theater where there's dozens of people all coming together to laugh and what else is going to lift your spirits more than that. So I think it's a spiritual experience. So there's, yeah, lots of ways that we can start to tap into what I call expansive intimacy. So it's great because as uh, burnout can hit you in lots of different areas, the antidote to this or, or, or the way out of it, the way through it is also multivariate, multifaceted, lots yeah. of ways that you can, you can work on, work on yourself. That was exactly what showed up for me as I started to put these two ideas together was I realized we needed something comprehensive, a set of strategies that were flexible, that could meet the challenge of something as gnarly as burnout and intimacy does it. And how about for the people who are not supportive? You mentioned that, you know, a lot of people will be supportive, but maybe it's your boss, maybe it's your spouse, maybe, you know, some people are just not either not going to want to hear it or, you know, will will 
resort to very traditional responses. Take a vacation, do this, do that, you know, type of thing. What yeah. What are the strategies for, for dealing with those conversations? Yeah, I think we all come to the solutions we need in our own time. And for some people, their tolerance for dealing with those kinds of conditions might be might be greater than mine were. And yeah, I can just keep pushing forward. Okay, I'll take a little bit more time away. Um, I'll, I'll utilize some some life hacks and I can be okay. Um, ultimately, you know, I guess one of the other things that comes up here is there's another confounding factor that's going on in our society and it's the loneliness epidemic that's happening in, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Earlier this year, the Surgeon General released a report naming loneliness as an epidemic in our society. And that creates this place where I don't have anyone that I can go to. I don't have any close social contacts to share what's really going on for me. That's a lot of what I'm trying to tackle because I keep seeing that come to me in the men who approach me. And I, I always ask on intake, tell me about your social life. And a lot of times I get, mm, I don't really have one. Well, no wonder you're suffering. You don't have anybody who you can really talk to. I'll let you take a sip. Yeah. Do you have more on that? Uh, yeah, probably. Um, I think one of the, the challenges in burnout work, because it's this complex dilemma, is there is no silver bullet. If there was, we wouldn't see the numbers continue to rise year over year of how many people are experiencing burnout. And so that's why I, I try to take this multivariate approach that relies on people. And if you are in a place where you don't have personal relationships, that's a great time to go to a professional because that professional can hold a space for you and create some of the skills and the comfort with getting through that, you know, whatever's holding you back from those close personal relationships. Great. Awesome. Well, Jim, as, as we start to wrap up here, there's, I've got a few questions I'd love to love to run by you. This is the Conscious Entrepreneur podcast. And I'm curious if you have a definition of what is a conscious entrepreneur. I do. And I, by the way, I just love the, the, the show and what you're bringing to, you know, out into conversation. Um, to me, conscious entrepreneurs, there's a, again, a multidimensionality starting with, am I aware of all of the people around me that I touch and impact as an entrepreneur? And that's employees, that's customers, certainly, that's a lot of what we focus on, but our partners, our vendor relationships, the community that we're in, and other beings. We live on a planet that we rely on, and are we creating a positive impact on that planet, or at least a neutral one? And I also think of the time dimension. Are we conscious of what's happened before us? Are we learning from history to know what might be helping us create those conditions? And a future orientation, and I think of it as ancestry. And the the saying of uh, a society grows great when its elders plant trees under whose shade they will never sit is one that really fits to, for me with conscious entrepreneurship. Am I creating something that's going to leave the world in a better place? Awesome. Thank you. I love that. I, I really like that, uh, that analogy there for that story. Now, what are your personal practices? You've been, 
through some tough experiences here, how have yep. they informed what you do on a daily, weekly, and monthly basis? Yeah, it's almost like what aren't my practices uh, at this point. Um, over the years, I've journaled, uh, and I continue to do that in a much smaller way than I used to, just to get my thoughts out. Uh, I'm a I'm a yoga practitioner, uh, a meditator, and and very recently, I've started learning about somatic meditation, not just meditating in my mind, but actually using my whole body. And it's been a transformative experience to, to calm my nervous system down. Some of the things we talked about before, exercising, getting out into nature, these, these life hacks, I do those. I did them, especially once I got well. And I said, how am I going to keep myself well? Because I want to live this long, happy life. And I need to show up physically for that and be engaged in the world around me and understand the impact on the world that I make. So I really try to be healthy in, in lots of different ways. And, and a lot of that is also connecting with people. Um, so I, I'm in mastermind groups that meet two different groups, uh, one a men's group, one a, a burnout focus group. We meet monthly and we support each other and trade life stories as well as professional uh, support. Um, and I do therapy when, uh, when necessary and, and just try to be, you know, try to be active in my relationships about what's real. How does somatic meditation work? What's that all about? Uh, somatic meditation. I'm learning about that. It's a long lineage. Um, my teacher, uh, Dan Doty is, uh, a, a coach and a men's, uh, group, uh, uh, men's movement leader. And he's done a ton of this work over the years, and he's been helping me understand some of, some work by Peter Levine and Reggie Ray um, about how we can meditate through our body. So we're really feeling using our interoceptive system to sense what's happening in our bodies. And so many of us are disconnected from our bodies. So if you just imagine right now, right, if we just close our eyes and try to feel every sensation we can in our big toes. So can you feel, you know, the the bottom of your toes, whatever contact they're making. Can you feel that soft padded part? Can you feel the toenail? Can you feel the bone inside? Can you feel where your toe connects to, to the top of your foot and notice any tension that's in there? That's a really quick <laughs> uh, sprint through a, a practice called 10 points meditation that asks us to feel our present body right now and see what's going on and start to notice where tension is building up. Now, what are the resources that you most recommend or would like to share? Books, videos, podcasts, et cetera, including um, Expansive Intimacy, the book by Jim Young. Yeah, and Expansive Intimacy, the podcast, uh, perhaps, too, because um, some of the concepts I talk about are certainly well aligned with, uh, with conscious entrepreneurism. Um, I'm a huge fan of the work of Raj Sisodia. Um, his book, Conscious Capitalism with John Mackey, The Healing Organization. Um, those two books uh, have really been helping me unpack my understanding. Um, I'm a big fan of Kundalini Yoga. I've got a teacher named Lee Malice uh, who runs online courses, and it's really helped me with movement and breathing and meditation all at the same time. Um, so, And there's, there's lots of other resources on on yoga and meditation out there. That's my personal uh, teacher. Um, yeah. And I think the other thing is, is nature. Um, when we find ourselves out in nature, I was swimming at a, a watering hole near me not too long ago and just being 
in this ravine where there's some, some water flowing through and I'm with my, my daughter and watching the sun hit the, the water. And there's, there's a lot of spirituality in there that helps me kind of ground down and remember how small of a speck, how much of a miracle I am, um, that, that all of us are and, uh, say, Oh, I might be getting a little bit ahead of myself here with some of the stress that I'm carrying because there's so much, so much good going on and I'm just a small speck in it. Fantastic. Well, Jim Young, thank you so much for joining the Conscious Entrepreneur Podcast. And thanks for being a pioneer in encouraging men to talk about their burnout stories and giving tools and resources to men to overcome these things and to overcome the stories and the conditioning that they have inside their mind. I really appreciate you sharing them and I appreciate your book. I appreciate your podcast and the other work that you do to help broaden the conversation so that we can hopefully reduce the amount of burnout that we're seeing out there in the world. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate you having me on. We can't get to this consciousness level that we want if we're struggling ourselves. So uh, thanks for the opportunity to share. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Conscious Entrepreneur. If you're ready to go deeper into working on yourself, check out the upcoming events, articles, and resources on our website, which is ConsciousEntrepreneur.us. I'd also really like to thank the team at Hivecast for producing this episode. If you run a podcast and are looking for an awesome, full-service production company, make sure to check out Hivecast.